third grade and under, yeah, can go to. Well, I guess I'm going back to prayer and um, studying, and we, we got it bumped up a little bit, so it's, it's up there. So anyway, um, that's kind of, it, it's been a fun journey. I have enjoyed studying this passage. Um, I'm thankful for David for the opportunity to do this. <clears throat> so in, in the Psalms, which aren't necessarily written um, chronologically, though, but you see David writing about the relationship with him and the Lord. Um, you see his struggles over the wickedness prevailing, or even walking uprightly, or seeing where God is in his life. And I, I think, at least in my life, I'm almost there all the time. Any, any week, I am probably struggling with one of these things. So uh, studying this psalm, I real, you know, and throughout my, my life, it, it's just nice to know that we have David's um, diary of him writing, writing, uh, you know, writing his thoughts to God and writing it down so we can have what, um, what he wrote down. So if you're struggling through something, there's a, probably a psalm that you can find that's dealing with what you're struggling with. Um, and more often than not, the psalm's going to end with the right perspective of who God is and what he's doing. Um, so that's just kind of the, the beginning. So we're, today we're going to look at four main points. Um, the number one point is God is to be worshipped. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Here the psalmist starts out by saying that heaven, heavenly beings are um, giving God glory and strength. I think if heavenly beings are giving God glory and strength, this should be one of our desires to do here on earth. Um, to me, it's safe to assume that we can do this, right? If, if David is saying we can, you know, that heavenly beings are doing it, that we should be able to do this also. Um, Webster defines a scribe to refer some quality or attribute to a being. Some version would say give. Unlike the worldly view we see today of any, any day of the week is take for myself, give me, give me, give me, I want more, more, more. David is saying we need to give to the Lord. And what do we give? We give glory and strength. Now, to me, I noticed that this is not based on how you're feeling that day. This is a command of give the, your glory and strength. And what do we give? In verse 2, at the beginning part, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. God deserves glory because of his name. There are multiple names of God used in the Bible, most of which are connected to an attribute of himself. God told Moses in the burning bush, Tell them, I am sent you. What is glory? One definition of glory is to exalt with joy or rejoice. We are not only to give God glory because of the the supernatural power of what we see in creation, although we should and need to see God's work in creation and the circumstances in our lives. We need to give him glory to him because he is Jehovah, I am. Not unlike when I tell my children that I said so or because I am dad. What I'm really saying is, since I am dad, it's good enough for you to obey me. The same way, we should give him glory because he's God, he's Jehovah. Can we joyfully rejoice in God in no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in? So you're going to get some storytelling here a little bit. So from births, I was born with cerebral palsy. Um, I, my mom and my parents, actually my whole family, were very incredible at just helping me deal, working me through this situation. Um, my mom particularly, I feel like 
always had the right perspective of how God allowed it, um, she would not. I mean, just the way she loved me. I don't know, being a parent myself now, I feel like I would not want a disabled child ever. I don't think any parent wishes to have a disabled child. So to have my mom dealing with a disabled child, I never heard her complain about it. I never heard her, you know, argue with God over it. She was there. She loved me. Um, I think that was the way she glorified God. It was just the way she treated me. And my family glorified God, too, because everything we did from therapy to physical therapy, speech therapy, my, whole, my siblings and my, my mom were right there just jumping in and dealing with it. And I, I feel like that was the way that she glorified God was just how she treated me. Also being homeschooled, she wouldn't let me stop at schooling. She wouldn't let me stop at my therapy. She just allowed, she taught me that God had, you know, allowed this to happen and God has authority over it. Did when I had it, still has authority over it, and it's not. It, it's his. That I just have to give it to him. That's, and since my family was 100% with my mom on this, in the trenches, I feel like they also give God glory in this also. The second part of verse 2 says, Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. He is a holy God to whom worship is due. God's creation, including humans, were created to worship. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Creation creation is showing God's work. And see, now I lost it. Creation is showing God's work and worshiping him by doing so. Obviously, um, if you're like me, when people come to visit from out of state, what is one of the first places you take them? You probably either take them to Garden of the Gods or Rocky Mountain National Park. It's just, it's beautiful, it's pretty close. That's just like the first thing you do. You want to see Colorado? We're going to the mountains. <laughs> Joanna's first visit, when she, obviously we, we uh, dated long distance. Um, the first time she came to visit, I remember we went up to Estes Park and it was cloudy. It was so overcast that day. We're going through the narrows and you could see, like, just barely the foothills, like, barely, you know, the ridge. She's like, man, these mountains are huge. <laughs> and I'm like, um, I don't know, but these aren't mountains. <laughs> we kept on driving a little bit more, and we passed the narrows, and it opens up a little bit. And she's like, these mountains are huge. These mountains are big. And I'm like, these aren't mountains. Like, and she's like, they've got to be mountains. I mean, he's, I'm like, no. These aren't mountains. We get to Estes Park, and it was still overcast. And I'm like, she's not going to see this. Like, she doesn't. <laughs> so we, we got to Estes Park. We walked around the town. Then we finally went up to the Rocky Mountain, the visitor center of Rocky Mountain National Park, and it finally cleared up enough that you could see mountains. And I just remember sitting there and was like, So it's not hard for us to look in Colorado to the west and just see God's creation glorifying God and what he's done and what he's built and created. Um, let's continue on. Worship the Lord in what? In the splendor of holiness. Some translations say holy attire and holy appearance. Even when angels came to bring a message, what did people do? They fell face down. 
every time the angels would tell them, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but every time the angels tell them, get up, I am not the person, which to me tells me if an angel's coming down and you fall straight down, it's got to be. It, it's got to, I mean, just the pure fact that you want to just worship that person, it, it's got to be huge. But they're telling you, they're telling people, I'm not the person, which tells me there's someone bigger, there's someone more glorious, and there's someone more great in holiness. I think of passages of Isaiah in, in Revelation. John had a vision of what David was writing about. So I'm going to read Revelation 4, 1 through 11, and you can turn there or you can just listen as I, as I read this. After this I looked up, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and a voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, light crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, like a face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle, in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him, who was seated in the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him, who was seated on the throne, and worshiped him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord God, to receive glory and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When I read this passage, just the picture that he saw of the gloriness, just pure, just pure perfection that we can't have down here. It's just, it, it, but that's what, I feel like that's what David's saying here is the Lord is arrayed in holiness and this is what it is. And this is, this is the God who we're serving and worshiping. I also think of what God chose Abraham in descendants um, and after that, he set, you know, he, he set them aside for himself. And then they were slaves in Egypt, and he brought them out of Egypt. So it, to me, it's no surprise that we have this holy God who had made very specific requirements on how to dress before they came and worshipped in the temple. And I, when I was reading this passage, um, they, there were requirements for, for any Israelite to come to the temple and how to, how to be clean and, and worship. And then the Levites who served in the temple were, had even more strict requirements and how to how to you know be clean and dress and and how to act and then you get toward the the um the and then you get toward the holy holies where god's dwelt and it's even stricter so and why is this because god's a holy god who demands perfection he doesn't just let any dirty person i mean he he demands perfection so he can't let unclean people come near him i 
I just saw it in my notes, but also um, at the mount when he spoke, he spoke to Israelites, and they're like, no, we don't want this. <laughs> Moses, you go talk to him. He scares us. It's, it's, it's just this fact that he is this pure, holy God who demands perfection. Uh, and for me, I was thinking about this. A simple ap- application for, for me is, and it could be for you also, is I don't come to work, I don't come to church in my work clothes. Now, i got to describe my work clothes. I work in a, a sheet metal shop where we fabricate, and I'll tell you, we get dirty. I have some of my coworkers here. We get dirty. We get just, we stink. <laughs> Our jeans probably last two months, and we have holes in them. Now, we're, we're trying to be cheap, so what do we do? We patch my holes, my holes up, and I have patches all over my clothes. They're, they still stink. You can wash them five times. But they will still stink. My wife can attest to this. <laughs> I don't come to church in those clothes because I, f- I feel like I need to honor God. But with that said, we cannot judge people who come to this service by how they're dressed. Jesus made a very clear in his teaching that this is a heart issue that he's addressing. Um, in Matthew we read, and he's talking to the Pharisees who prided themselves for being spiritual. The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I had the parable of tax collecting the Pharisee. Thank you, Nathan, for putting that up there, because now I feel like I don't have to read it. It's the same thing, though. The tax collector was saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm doing all these good things. And then you have this tax collector who's like, his heart was in the right place of God, just help me. We were created to worship. And what is worship? Simply, worship is what you put above everything else. Do we put the creator above all things? Or is our family, finances, possessions, or favorite sports team first? Maybe this isn't the best example, but the material things are like cans of soda. When I was in high school, younger, I loved soda. I love the carbonation, and I could drink and drink carbonation. But here's the deal. What happens if you have one can? You're going to want another can. Or if you're like me, you bought the two liters, you had a couple glasses, and then it sat in your fridge, and then what happens? It goes flat. <laughs> These things don't satisfy, ever. Um, material things don't satisfy like the can of soda. We want it because the taste going to satisfy us for a little bit, but after a while, it just wants us leaving, leaving more. They will leave us wanting more money, better relationships with family, or another Stanley Cup because, well, I mean, look at the Broncos. I mean, is the Super Bowl really going to happen again? Maybe, but the Stanley Cup has happened, so we're going to go with that. Um, temporal things will disappear in months or years, and it will never satisfy us. So I submit that what we're looking for to satisfy us is what we are worshiping. Either we worship the holy God who created the universe, or we worship ourselves and the material things in this life. The, other, the second main point is the voice and authority of God. Verse 3. The voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. It starts out with the statement that the Lord is over the waters. In an occupational setting, one who is over an apartment oversees the apartment is running smoothly and efficiently and is being productive. 
It says the Lord is overseeing the waters, so he knows what the waters are doing and that the waters are under his authority. The God of glory thunders. Thunder is something that we cannot ignore in the midst of a storm. I don't, we don't get too many good storms out here in Colorado, but usually when they do happen, there's thunder. You can't miss it. You, you can't. We need to recognize that God's glory is not ignorable. Thunder always, always coincides with lightning. And in my mind, I mean, you talk about thunder, you've got to talk about lightning. So when I was a kid, I don't know how many kids like thunderstorms, honestly. But when I was a kid, I was deathly afraid. Um, I remember was three or four. My parents were at a conference, and my, parent, my grandparents were watching us in Chicago. And Chicago gets some good storms. And I remember the storm rolled through, and it got closer and closer, and the thunder started getting louder and louder. What, what do you think I did? I jumped on their bed. Like, that's when I was three and four, and then you'd think I grew out of it, but no. When I was like in high school or middle school, I can't remember exactly the age, we have an acre up here on the hill, and there was a one storm that rolled through, and it hit our elm tree right by our garage, and I'll tell you what, you can feel the electricity, and the thunder, you, can't, you, don't, you don't even have time to wait for thunder. It just happens just like that. And our house was old, and our, I mean, the train track down here would rattle our windows. So you can imagine what our house was doing when the, sun, when the lightning struck right by our house. I mean, it was incredible. It just, just nuts. And it scared me. And I was in high school. I mean, I should have known better, but no. But that, that's just, a, I think that's what David is portraying. God's glory is this big of magnitude. You can't get away from it. It's, it, it's there. So, to me, obviously there's a contrast between lightning and thunder. Lightning hits a specific spot, but thunder is obviously, you know, you can be in a storm, not close to a storm, but you can see lightning and you can hear thunder separate. And you have time to think and process it. So, obviously, the closer you are to this lightning and the storm, the more intense and the, and the closer they are together. God uses specific acts toward a person or a nation. To me, that's like the lightning. They'll feel a direct impact, while others in a wide radius will hear it and recognize God's glory in it. Have you ever had a muddy car? Usually you take it and get it cleaned up. I have a pressure washer. A lot of people have pressure washers now. You take it to your driveway, you just pressure wash it off. Like that's, or even your driveway, it gets dirty, you pressure wash it. Why? Well, because power, water is powerful. Or have you seen the ground erode? Like seriously, like if you've seen a rainstorm, it can change the way the contour of the ground. It's because it's, so, it's powerful. Over the history of the world, we've used the power of the water to benefit us. The water wheel and hydroelectrics as examples. David says in verse 3 that the water is this powerful force in nature. Even this adheres to the voice of God. Verse 4 through 9. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Siron like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. In verse 4, we see the voice of the Lord is powerful. 
In Genesis 1, we see that God created the world with his voice. God spoke it into existence. Now, we, Wade talked about this a little bit last week. I can't imagine just speaking and things being created. Like, this voice is incredible. Christ cast out demons with his voice. In Matthew 8, we read that Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law. It, I was reading, reading this the other day. It specifically says he touched her to heal her. But then it says others heard about it and started bringing sick, demon-possessed people. And so Jesus starts healing, casting out demons. Not really specific on how he does it, but he's working, 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 doing, doing the work of God. And then it says afterwards they got into a boat to go across the other side of the sea. Now, these are fishermen. And what does it say? They said they got in the boat and there was a storm that arose. I'm assuming for fishermen you're used to a rocky boat. So we're, it says that the disciples were frightened. I'm assuming that this is a pretty big storm if you've got fishermen who are freaking out. And what are they doing? They're looking around for answers. And what do they do? They find Jesus sleeping in the boat. Like, I don't know if it's exhaustion or if he just understands he's had authority over it, but, or just wants quiet time, he's sleeping in the storm. And the disciples freak out. They call him, like, what are you going to do? And basically, he just says, calm down. I've got this. He rebukes the storm with his voice. That's all he does. And the storms obeys. Like, this voice that we're talking about is huge and powerful. He, Disciples, I don't think, understood, and I don't know if I fully understood, that God is authority, Jesus was authority over the weather. Over what he created, he has authority over. God even used a donkey to audibly communicate with Balaam. Now, you talk about crazy. There's one thing to just speak and have something happen. To use an animal to audibly talk to somebody, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, the voice is the most effective way to communicate. So, like I said, Joanna and I were dated long distance. She lived in Minnesota, and I lived here. And it started out with emails. And I remember the first, sort of remember the first one I wrote was, hey, my people, because we met through mutual friends, my sister and her best friend knew each other, and that's how we kind of, but anyway, I just remember saying, my people and your people have talked and think that we should get to know each other. That's how I started it. So we, we emailed for a little bit. And then we started texting. And texting was, was, I liked more than emails because you could get like an instant, it was more personal and it was usually quicker response time than just, you know, oh, hey, you know, a couple days later, yeah, I'm responding, I have time to respond. It was usually quicker and more response time. Then it went to, to so we did that for a little bit and then it went to, to call in on the phone, talking, with, I'll tell you what, the voice beats text and email any day. Why? Because it's instant, like you know for sure for a fact, what they're thinking, how they're thinking it. I will say, though, in our dating life, early on, that scared me because I could hear the mood she was in by the tone of her voice. Like, and it just, but the, the point is, is that the voice is, was the most effective way, I think, for anybody to communicate. And it's instant, unlike the email I sent. I didn't hear back from, the first time, I didn't hear back from, what, three weeks? Nine days. When you send an email like that and you wait nine days, this scares the guy. <laughs> Apparently, everything worked out. But the, the, my, my point is, is that the, the voice, like communicating with either through a phone or just 
face-to-face is the quickest and easiest, most effective way to communicate. And it's saying right here that the voice of God is doing all these things. God's communication with, with the created world. He did not create the world and let it spin on its own like an agnostic believes. He is very much in the middle of the world. God also communicates with us today through his word. He has given us the helper of the Holy Spirit to reveal his word as we study it. He can also speak... He can also speak to us through other people. But there's a caution with this, though. We need to check what people are telling us against Scripture to confirm confirm or deny what they are saying. Likewise, if we're going to speak truth to others, we need to make sure that it is in line with the written word because God's word doesn't change. So you have these people that, yes, they, they can speak truth to you, but if it's something contrary to the Bible, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not truth. So if people are speaking to you and they're saying it's from God or whatever, you need to double-check that it is in line with the Bible because God's word doesn't change. God doesn't change, and, that is, and that's, how we, that's how it should be. The storm that David is describing is big enough, big enough to break trees. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Again, we see the power of God's voice. Me, I find it a little humorous. I, I probably read it wrong, but... To me, it says the Lord breaks cedars. Oh, well, not big enough for you? Well, how about the cedars of Lebanon? Like, it just seems like it's escalating. And there's progression in these verses. First, God is, br- is breaking cedars. Then fire is flashing. After that, the wilderness is being shaken. Then animals are being born. In all these cases, it's a command from the voice of the Lord. It's as if David is um, debating with someone that God is in control of everything. Sure, God is in control of the rain, but in the destruction of trees... Yes, he is. Well, what about lightning storm? He doesn't control that. Yes, he does. He's not in the reproduction of life. That's just nature taking its course. He is. Well, God wouldn't be in an earthquake that destroys land and crops. Surely he wouldn't be in that too. He is. In this psalm, we are seeing God's control over every aspect of the scenario. Unlike a polytheistic belief where there is a different God for each of these things, David is saying there is one God. I can only imagine a polytheistic, boy, I'm having a hard time reading, polytheistic person sitting in front of a huge flowchart, which if you've never seen a flowchart, it's a chart that helps you troubleshoot problems. It's like if this, this, and this is happening, you follow this line, and it'll kind of tell you how to, how to fix your problem. I can see this polytheistic person with this huge flowchart, because we have many issues in our life and in the world, trying to figure out which God do I need to please to make things better. We don't have that problem. We have one God. In the storms of our life, do we recognize God's authority over it, or do we focus on the effects of the storm? Whether it's joblessness, financial difficulty, a rocky relationship, or even a spiritual storm in your heart and mind, God is overseeing it. Number three, the calm after the storm, not the clam, which we had up here originally, <laughs> which I would have ran with, but it's the calm. So the middle part of the psalm, if you were to experience it, would be kind of uptight and tense, at least for me. It would be really, I would be nervous. Then David writes this. The Lord sits enthroned over the floods. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The same one that has authority over the storm has authority over peace. There is nothing like peace after you've been through a storm, whether it's a weather storm 
where you, in Colorado, at least for me, what, after a storm, you feel a calmness. It's, it's usually cool. And what I love is when birds start coming out and singing again. Like there's nothing, to me, that's like, oh, the storm is ended. Their birds are happy. <laughs> or even a, a life storm. And talk about a life storm. I was thinking, last night I was thinking of Job. You talk about a guy, you follow God, and all of a sudden his herds die, which means his, I'm assuming his income had died at that point too. And his children had died all in the same didn't know his life's like didn't die. They were taken away. They were stolen. His, all his workers were killed. His children had died. And we're, talk, we're not talking like a small farm here. We're talking like 7,000 sheep, 500 donkeys and oxen. Like we're talking big time loss. And what does he do? He has some friends come over, so-called friends, that try to, to try to help him that aren't really helping him. He's got a wife who's saying, just curse God and die. Talk about a life storm. What does he do? He, he faithfully trusted in the sovereignty of God. Then it was, after all this, it was restored to him double of what he already had, except for the kids. I checked that out. Not 20 kids. Ten kids. <laughs> but the, my, my point is, is that the God who ha- is over the storm is the same God that can deliver peace. And the storm is not going to last forever. Oh, and by the way, yeah, you read Job 1. God had authorized all this to happen to him. Satan comes over and is like, hey, what about your servant Job? God's like, yeah, try it out. See what you, see what you can do. God is all-knowing and knows what is going on in our lives. I'm certain of this. So God authorized all this to happen to Job, and then afterwards, God chose to restore to him twice of what he already had. That does not mean for us he's going to restore twice of what we have if we go through a storm or if we lose something. But it's a picture that God loves his people and cares for them. And I feel like storms that we have in life aren't going to last forever. May the God, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people's peace. Who is the one doing this? It's the Lord. We cannot create peace on our own. I know we try, but we can't. So what's our response to this? Here we have a holy, perfect God who created the world and us, and we are imperfect people because of sin. How are we supposed to worship, supposed to worship and glorify him properly in this state? We can't do it on our own. I think back to my work genes. If you think about them, they're dirty, they're stained. What do we do? We try to patch them up. We try to make them look nicer. We try to make it last longer. It doesn't last. The, the, the genes I have now, obviously, have holes in my patches, which means you either got to repatch them or we just got to throw them away and start over again. The point is, though, is that we are stained with sin. We are definitely not perfect and able to please God on our own. But only because of Jesus coming to earth, he was perfect and dying for our sins. He has made our sins white as snow. To modernize it, he's saying, I've got this covered for you. We cannot do, we cannot clean up our sin on our own. But Jesus coming down to earth, saying, dying for our sins, lived in a perfect life, dying for our sins, has said, 
I've got this covered for you. Trust in me. Have faith in me. And only because of this can we properly worship and glorify him. So what do we do with this? Do we hold God's name in holy reverence? Do we use it properly or do we use it improperly and use it as a curse word, which is very prominent in the workforce? Like the storm that is described here, do we see God's authority and voice being over the natural disasters, floods, drought, and volcanoes? Do we respond by saying, this is horrible, how will we stop this again? Or do we see the glory of God in showing his power and what about in our lives? Understand this. We are all under the authority of God. Do we wallow in self-pity, live in self-righteousness, live like God's authority doesn't apply to us? What about God's authority over our family? Now, this one hits, this one hits home because, obviously, I had young kids. Husbands, it's not, our responsibility, it's not our family to rule as we see fit. But as a servant, I, we've talked, I think this was in Ephesians, we, we talked about this months ago. Just the, the picture of Jesus at the, at the Last Supper put a cloth on and was washing his disciples' feet. I don't dare say you would see a high Pharisee doing this. We have this picture of just being servants, and we're supposed to imitate Christ. So it's not our families to rule as we see fit like an iron fist or because I said so. But we need, to, we need to be servants to Christ first and then to our family. Parents, do we recognize God's authority over how we raise and train our children? Do our children see Christ's life, love, and discipline? Do your children see God's authority over your marriage? Now, I'm going to say this. It doesn't matter how old your kids are. Your kids could be 57. Do they still see Christ's like love in the way you're married and how you interact with people? Your kids could be seven. Do they see you and your wife in, in the way, or your wife, you know, you and your husband, do they see the way of, of God's, you know, Christ-like centeredness in your, in your relationship? There's a choice we all must make. Each of us must choose to either listen or turn away from the authority of Christ. Do we choose to submit to his authority in, your, in, your, in our lives and live in fellowship with him? Maybe you have put your faith in Christ, but you have not allowed his authority over your daily life. You keep this for Sunday morning. Or do you reject his authority and live in separation? However you choose, the Lord sits on throne forever. What a peace, what a blessing it is for those of us who have chosen to put our faith in him, knowing that God is in control of nature and the circumstances of our, of our lives. The last part of verse 9, I, I say this to last, and I don't know why particularly, but I did. And in his temple all cry holy. As you probably know, I'm a huge sports fan. Um, I love sports. I watch sports. I don't quite breathe sports. But if there's a sports thing going on, the game, I will watch. So in Stanley, um, and as my wife will tell you, if I'm by myself at home, I'm pretty quiet when it comes to watching sports. I just watch it. I enjoy it. If I'm with people, though, that are watching and getting into it, I get more vocal and it more intense. That's just, I've watched many football games with, with a lot of you, and when you start yelling, I will start yelling or arguing or doing something. I just get more intense. It's, the most I did, I watched the Stanley Cup, the final game by myself, because my family's in Minnesota. So the most I did when they won was, yay, that's about all I did. 
Even though I was excited, that's just all I did, I was, you know, outwardly. Giving God glory is in the same way. It's very contagious. No one of the author of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When fellow believers are with other believers in genuine worship, it causes them to also worship. So what other response can we have but going to his temple and crying holy? Deep breath, Jonathan.